Amen. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We've uh, been teaching for um, a number of weeks on the subject of spiritual authority and dominion. And uh, um, I don't know exactly how long we've been going on this series. It's been a couple of months, uh, I would guess, anyway, maybe more than that. And uh, each one of these services has kind of been building on the last one. We've covered a lot of ground, and and, um, um, as such, I think uh, it might do us well to to back up and go over some things that we've already covered. It wouldn't be nice if we got something the first time that we heard it. Wouldn't it be great if, uh, if whatever we read in the Bible stuck and then we had it for life and that was it? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It takes a while for it to sink in. So, uh, so tonight my, my purpose is to cover some ground that we've already covered and then uh, uh, emphasize there's one point specifically that I believe the Lord would have me to to put some additional emphasis on. Genesis 127, it tells us God's purpose for man, the creation of man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of him created he, male and female created he them. I read verse 27. I meant to read verse 26. Let's back up one. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea And over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Um, We've said this maybe every time that we've been together in this series. And I think it's important to keep saying it uh, with the the hope that it, it really sinks in. It is undeniable that the purpose that God created man was for him to have dominion and authority in the earth. God created man after his likeness and after his image. That's another way of reiterating the law of Genesis. Everything God created may reproduced after its own kind. Well, God created man after his own kind. He made made him in his image and after his likeness. He made man an exact duplication of himself. And he gave him authority. Now, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, I think it's verse 7, that he breathed into man... He made him, formed him from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him, and he became a living soul. So the life of God was transferred, literally breathed into Adam. And that was the source of Adam's life. It was also the source of his authority. The reason that God was able to give Adam authority is because he made him in his image. He had the same, he meaning Adam, had the same life within himself that is the life of God. Now that's kind of hard for us to comprehend because we have uh, some different ideas, I guess, about God and what he's like and, and so forth. But the Bible says the same life that was in Adam is the life of God. The very same life, the very same spirit, the very same nature, very same characteristics. Before the fall, everything about man was a duplicate of God, duplication of God. But we know what happened. God gave man one command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes in upon the scene, deceives Eve. Adam goes along with her deception, and they disobey God. And when they disobeyed God, everything changed. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Wherefore as by one man, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Well, God had said just exactly that. He said in the day that you eat thereof, if you disobey his commandment and eat of the fruit of the tree that he commanded them not to, he said in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die physically that day. So what happened? Well, he died spiritually. Now, spiritual death, we think of death as being the the end of existence. But very seldom does the Bible speak of death in in those terms. Spiritual death is separation from God. At the moment that they disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were, were separated or estranged from God. The life of God is no longer the source of their, their, their origin. 
And as a result, they lost their authority. They became subject to the consequences of sin and death in the earth. God told uh, Adam and Eve what the at least what some of the consequences of that uh, that spiritual death would be. He told them about a curse upon the earth. He told them about a curse upon the work of their hands. And he talked to Eve about the curse in childbirth, how the things would change from that point forward. Up until that time, God had created the earth to serve Adam. The Bible gives us an account of creation, how that God made everything by words. There's only one reason that makes sense, at least, why God would give us that information. And that is God exercised dominion over the earth in the creation by the use of his words, by the spoken word. Well, how then is Adam supposed to exercise dominion and authority on the earth, the the dominion and authority that God gave him over the earth? It had to be the same way. If he's made an exact duplication of God, then it has to be his words that are the, the exercise of his authority and his dominion. But now words don't, don't count the same. Now meaning after the fall. Spiritual death has brought con- the consequence of sin and death upon the earth. Sickness, poverty, lack in every area. The earth is now subject to circumstance rather than Adam's words. Now he speaks words, but they're not from his heart. At least not, they're not living words. They're not words that are alive because his spirit is no longer alive. Satan becomes the God of this world. So God is locked out. In one sense, he's locked out from his creation. He's estranged. He's separated from the man that he created to have fellowship with. Well, what's he going to do? What's God's response to this? Hundreds of years go by. Man begins to destroy himself and to destroy the earth that he's in. God has to wipe mankind out because of his wickedness through the flood in Noah's day and basically start over. Finally, he gets to the place where he makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. Now, the purpose for God making the covenant with Abraham that becomes the Old Testament law, the covenant that he made with Israel the descendants of the seed of Abraham, is that God is trying to find a way, trying to make a way for the blessings, spiritual blessings, that were Adam's when he was united with his creator to come back into the life for the benefit of mankind. So he gives him instructions to obey. And Abraham does. He becomes faithful. He learns. He doesn't do it all right at, one, right at first or at one shot. But he learns over a period of time that God is faithful. And ultimately, he comes to the place where he's willing to sacrifice his only son. Now, one of the things that, uh, that we see in, in Abraham's case, when God first appears to him in Genesis chapter 12, I think it is. Abraham is 75 years old. And he hasn't had any children. Now, why hasn't he had any children? Because the law of sin and death and the consequence of spiritual death is affecting him and robbing him of what God intended for man to be fruitful and to multiply on the earth. So one of the first things that we see is that God's covenant with Abraham overcomes the consequences of sin and death. What Paul called in Romans chapter 8, the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was operating on the earth, producing negative consequences, contrary to the will of God, contrary to the plan of God, contrary to the way that God created the earth and wanted it to work. So he overcomes this consequence or the law of sin and death in part, not completely, but in part through the Old Testament law. Starts with Abraham, handed down through Moses. Moses codifies the consequences of obedience and the curses of disobedience. Now, what I mean by that is 
he lists what those consequences are for disobeying God and tells what the blessings will be for obedience to the instruction and commandments of God. Now, there's only one reason that this would take place, and that is God wants his people, the ones that that are the recipients of the covenant that he made with Abraham, to know how to overcome the consequence of of the law of sin and death, the consequences of spiritual death. And it's all wrapped up in obedience. Part of the obedience is the ritual sacrifice, the ritual sacrifices, the day of atonement and other sacrifices, other, other blood sacrifices and such are given to mankind to show him that without the shedding of blood, he cannot gain access to God. But the the blood of goats and bulls and animals and so forth can only provide a temporary respite from from the, the real effects of spiritual death being separated from God. So they have to do it yearly, meaning the day of atonement sacrifice, other blood sacrifices and other sacrifices uh, as part of the ritual are made periodically throughout the year. God's trying to show man two things. Number one, that it takes a sacrifice to purify man so that he can come back and stand before God. But secondly, that man can't keep the law. That it's impossible for man in his fallen state in his spiritually dead condition to maintain a place where the consequences can be his by right. The consequences of spiritual blessings and spiritual life can be his by right. Then Jesus comes along. The law of Moses is in effect for years and years, hundreds of years. Then Jesus comes along and Jesus is sent to the earth with one express purpose, and that is to be the sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice, to rejoin mankind back back to the Father God. We know of his birth. We know that he was born of a virgin. This was absolutely necessary to bypass the law of sin and death that had passed upon all mankind. If he's born of a man and a woman then the same spiritual death that took hold of mankind from every, in every generation since Adam would have taken hold of him too. So he's born of a virgin. Now Jesus explains the importance of this in John chapter 10 when he talks about, well, turn a little bit to John chapter 10. Maybe it's, it would be a good idea for us to look at this again. John chapter 10 I think, this is just my opinion, you judge it for yourself. But it seems to me that the virgin birth has become, it didn't used to be this way, but has become in the modern day church one of those doctrines that you can either believe if you want to or not believe if you want to. It's not a big deal. But Jesus indicates that it's a, it's a huge deal. For the very reason that we stated before, if he was not born of a virgin then he could not have been unaffected or untainted by the law of sin and death in the earth. But more importantly, Jesus talks about it from a standpoint of the virgin birth provided him a legal right to exercise authority in the earth. He starts off in John chapter 10 and verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He's talking about the entrance into the earth into this world now the door he's talking about here in verse 1 is natural birth we've made the statement before and it bears repetition that there are about 65 times I believe it is 64 or 65 times in the four gospels that Jesus refers to himself as either the son of man or the son of God now the modern day church emphasizes Jesus as the son of God but 60 of those 65 times Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Only five times out of the 65 does he refer to himself as the son of God. And three of those are at one time, at one event. Jesus emphasized himself as the son of man more than anything else. And this is what he's talking about 
concerning the virgin birth and his entrance into the earth. He said that he did it legally. Now, the thief and the robber that he's talking about is Satan. He said Satan has come to the place where he has stolen man's authority on the earth. Satan was, became the god of this world when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. But he didn't gain that authority legally. Adam had gained it legally because God created him and put him here to have dominion on the earth. But Satan stole it. He robbed Adam of that authority through spiritual death. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, I'm the one that has legal authority on the earth because I came and was born of a woman. Not man and a woman, but born of a woman. So this was a huge issue where Jesus was concerned. And the reason it was so huge is because God gave man authority. God's original intent was to create man for the purpose of having authority on the earth. If that was God's original purpose and original will, it's his present day will. Now think about what that means. That means he doesn't, he meaning God, doesn't have authority here. He gave authority to man. He didn't give co-authority or joint authority to man when he created him. God kept part of the authority and gave the other part to man. He made man to have dominion and authority over everything that he created. That means God does not have authority here. So much of the church world seems to have the idea that whatever God wants to do, he's going to do here in the earth. Well, unless man gives him an opportunity to operate, unless man, through the exercise of his authority, invites God to operate here, God would be violating his own plan and purpose to take authority back from man and to do what he wants to here on the earth. God's not the one that has authority in your life, folks. God's made a way for him to help you and to use his, for you to use his ability through the word of God, through the exercise of your authority. But he's not the one that has authority. You do. So many times Christians say, well, I don't know why God let this happen. Talking about calamity or tragedy or adversity or whatever. And God's not the one that has authority over those things. We know that tragedy and adversity is in the earth because it's a consequence of spiritual death that came upon Adam and all of mankind afterwards. But God's not the one that has authority to overcome that. He gave that authority to you and me. So this is why it's such an important issue for Jesus. He says, I'm the one that has legal authority here on the earth. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but again, it's, for me, it's such an important issue that I want to cover it again. When Jesus came to the earth, being born of a virgin, he bypassed the spiritual death and the law of sin and death that was upon all of mankind. Now, what would you expect, knowing the Old Testament law of Moses, the consequences of disobedience and all the blessings of obedience, what kind of life would you expect Jesus to have lived prior to him beginning his earthly ministry? He keeps the law completely. He's the first human being in the history of mankind that has ever kept the law without disobeying God in any way whatsoever. Well, doesn't that put him in line for the blessings of obedience? Now, the Bible says, and this is in Philippians. Why don't you turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, I think it's verse 7. Tells us about Jesus coming to the earth. Let's start reading in verse uh, verse 5. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like he did. Have the same attitude that he had. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is a difficult translation. Because literally what it's saying is that Jesus put the plan of God, God's plan of redemption, ahead of his position as a part of the Godhead. A better translation would say something like this. Who did not think that 
his equality with God was a thing to hold on to. It's saying that Jesus was willing to lay aside his heavenly power and glory, the glory he had with the Father prior to him coming to the earth as the creator of the universe. Now, what kind of power did Jesus have as the Son of God, part of the Trinity? Unlimited power. The Bible says Jesus is the one that created the universe. Paul tells us that. Jesus is the one. He was the word, was and is. And so Jesus was the one that was responsible for carrying out the creation plan of God where the universe was concerned, the earth included. He had unlimited power. So he's got a choice. God didn't force him. God didn't strong arm him. Jesus has to operate according to his own will. And so he had a choice. Is he going to hold fast to that place that he had as the Godhead? Or is he going to operate according to God's plan of redemption to benefit mankind and restore mankind to fellowship with God? That's what this is talking about. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't hold fast or cling to his position as a part of the Godhead. But instead... It says, but made himself of no reputation, verse 7, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, let me read this to you from a couple other translations. There's, there's tons of them I could give you. The American Standard Version said, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Darby said, but emptied himself, taking a bondsman's form, taking his place in the likeness of men. Another translation talks about him emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, and so forth. There's about 10 or 12 of these translations that I have access to just on my my iPad. Well-known translations that all talk about him emptying himself. So where it talks about making himself of no reputation, it literally means he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. That's what he didn't cling to. That power, that glory, that position. Now the Bible says that we should have the same mind as he had. What mind did Jesus have? Well, he was willing to sacrifice his position for the benefit of others. To take upon himself the form of a servant. Mankind, literally. We should be willing to give of ourselves. But what does, but there's another part to this too. And that is. What does Jesus know that we might not necessarily recognize right off? But what does Jesus know that he's good, the, the position that he's going to be in when he comes to the earth? Certainly being made a man, even though he's born of a virgin and bypasses the, the consequence of spiritual death or the law of sin and death, puts him in a position where he's a recipient or eligible for all of the blessings of God, he knows he's going to be in a place where he has authority. So that should be part of our mindset too, shouldn't it? Not just that we be willing to give up ourselves to benefit and to help other people according to the plan and the purpose of God, but that we should recognize the place of authority that God created man, including us, to have here on the earth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it was an equal trade by any means. The step down from Jesus being the son of God in his glory before the earth was created <clears throat> to being born of a man, or born of a woman, excuse me, with absolute authority here on the earth, even as God originally intended, even though the absolute authority is, sounds really good, and it is, it's a giant step down. So Jesus is certainly sacrificing something. Not only that, he knows his purpose for coming to the earth is to pay the price for all of mankind's sins. To be not only the sin offering, the holy sin offering for man, but also to be the scapegoat 
to bear the judgment of all of mankind's sins upon himself. He knows there's going to be a great suffering. He knows that part of his step down to come to the earth is that he is going to have to die spiritually. Because that's the only thing that can pay the price for man's spiritual death. So let this mind be in you, just like it was in Christ Jesus, who didn't hold on to his position with God in the beginning, but made himself of no reputation or emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, what's the death of the cross? Well, the death of the cross was twofold. It's physical death as the sin offering, but it was also spiritual death as the scapegoat. That's the only way the Old Testament type of the Day of Atonement could be fulfilled. Now, Jesus knew what was ahead. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he knew what the end result would be. He knew what the plan of God was going uh, was from the beginning. He knew what he was stepping into. But back to his life before he started his ministry. He comes to the earth and he fulfills God's plan for Adam as a human being. He's operating in what I can only describe in my thinking as the ultimate recipient of the, the Abrahamic covenant. Everything he puts his hand to prospers. There's no sickness and no disease. There's no taint of sin whatsoever in any way. I think we see a glimpse of this at the wedding feast of Cana. We've talked about this. I've mentioned this before. But when his mother comes, they run out of wine and his mother comes to him and he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? This my hour has not yet come. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, why in the world would his mother say something like that? Unless she's seen the power of his words working all through his life. See, I believe, you judge this for yourself. But I believe Jesus has been the recipient of many, many, many supernatural things through the exercise of his authority and dominion as a covenant man, an Abrahamic covenant fulfiller, if you will, a keeper of the law of Moses. I believe he's seen miracles in his own life, not for the benefit of others, but in his own life because he kept the law of Moses. He kept the covenant of Abraham. And his mother seems to be, in my mind, seems to be indicating that to the servants. If he tells you to do something, you do whatever he says. Well, he's anointed by the Holy Ghost when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. The anointing of God comes upon him. Now, what does this signify? Well, we've just seen in, in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. Let's say it this way. He emptied himself of the power that he had as the Son of God. That would be an accurate statement, wouldn't it? So when he's here on the earth, he is the Son of God by nature, but not in power. Well, where does his power come from? It can't be the power that he had before the worlds were created or the power that we can describe and identify as the power that he had as the Son of God. Well, then what power does he have? He has the power of God that's conferred upon him by the Holy Ghost. When Jesus talks about this power and to do miracles and help other people to benefit others, he talks about it being from the Father because he's the son of man. Now I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 5. This is such an important point, And the more I talk about it. And the more I meditate on it. The more important it seems to be to me. 
John chapter 5. Verse 18 tells us about how the Jews wanted to kill him because he had said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. I, I, wish, I wish we understood what that really says and the meaning behind it. See, when Jesus said God was his father, we say God's our father and we just say it casually and flippantly and it's kind of like, yeah, well, God's our father. We're born again. We're part of his family and God's our father. But when Jesus said God was his father, the Jews understood that he is saying, I am of the nature of my father. The Jews understood him to be saying, my father has shared his ability with me. Boy, if the church could just get a hold of that, that'd turn the world upside down. So Jesus is being sought after. The Jews want to kill him because he's made himself equal with God, saying that God was his father. Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. For the father loveth the son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. The works that have been done up to this point are healing works, works of deliverance. He's cleansed every sickness and every disease among the people. He's turned water into wine. He's multiplied loaves and fishes and fed thousands. There's all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders that have been done that are blowing everybody away. The Jews are having a problem with this because they've tried to assimilate Jesus. When Jesus first came on the scene, they tried to assimilate Jesus into their own group. Come be a Pharisee with us. And Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them. Well, that made him their enemy in their minds. So they don't know what to do with him. Because he keeps doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He keeps doing supernatural signs and works. Yet Jesus says, I'm not doing these of myself. You're upset with me for saying that God is my father. But I'm just doing what I see my father do. In other words, he's saying... Everything that I do, the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the healings and so forth that I'm doing is to show you what God is like. That's what that means. I'm showing you what God is like. Well, God certainly is shown to be willing to exercise his power upon a man that's operating according to the covenant of, of the Abrahamic covenant and the law of Moses. Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to do greater works than these. What greater works can you do than the ones that he's been doing? He's going to identify what they are. For as the father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the son quickeneth whom he will. The greater works he's talking about is the raising of the dead. Now, folks, he's not talking about raising from physical death. Keep that in mind as we read. For the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the son. Now, what judgment is he talking about? We think of judgment, we mean the modern day church, seems to think of judgment as being condemnation from God. That's not what the judgment Jesus came to execute. The Bible says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to exercise judgment upon the law of sin and death. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says it this way. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about Jesus condemned through a sacrifice. Jesus condemned the spiritual death that passed upon all mankind. He put an end to the law of sin and death through the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, making Jesus the Lord of your life, becoming one with Jesus makes you one with the Father. And that's the judgment that he's exercised upon spiritual death. So the judgment that God has committed unto Jesus is not standing over people and saying, hell for you, heaven for you, and, and that kind of thing. It's not that kind of judgment. 
It's judgment upon Satan and his works. Meaning the consequences of spiritual death. So he says God doesn't judge anybody. Now, now let's think about that for a second. Why wouldn't God judge the, the, the works of Satan? Because he doesn't have authority here. This is where Satan is doing his works. God's not the one with authority here. Again, it shows the importance of the virgin birth. Jesus had to come into the world legally to exercise judgment upon Satan and spiritual death, to destroy the works of the devil. Those are synonymous terms. So that's why Jesus said the father doesn't, doesn't judge, but he's committed judgment unto the son because the son is the only one that has come into the earth legally. For the, as the father, for the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the son, that all men should honor the son even as they honor the father. He that honoreth not the son honoreth not the father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now notice verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Now notice Jesus talks about the dead hearing the voice of the Son of God, not the Son of Man. Why don't they hear the voice of the Son of Man? Because they're not on the earth where the Son of Man is. He's talking about the Old Testament saints. That's what he means when he talks about the dead. He said, there's coming a time where the dead will hear my voice. And they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. He's talking about executing judgment upon Satan and his works. The law of sin and death, spiritual death. Because he's the Son of Man. What's he talking about? Well, we know in hindsight, and if we were standing there listening to Jesus, we would have had no clue. But we know in hindsight that Jesus became the eternal sacrifice for us. We found from the Old Testament times that that meant two sacrifices. He became the sin offering, which was holy, to sanctify us before the Father. But then he became the scapegoat to take upon himself sin, literally to be made sin, to pay the ultimate and eternal judgment upon God, from God upon that sin, the sin of mankind. What does that mean? That means Jesus died spiritually. That means Jesus had to. He had to be the sacrifice and the substitute for you. And since spiritual death was the thing that had to be paid for, If Jesus didn't die spiritually, then somebody still has to. Thank God we don't have to. So what happens? Jesus is suffering the penalty of sin. He's spiritually dead. He's separated from God the Father. He's completely laid down his life without any power to take it back up again. He's committed his hands into the Father. Remember, Jesus did that as he died on the cross. The death on the cross was the sin offering. But then the three days in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth, was the judgment as the scapegoat. So he commits his hands, his spirit, into the hands of God. It's no longer in his hands. He has a hope that's described in Philippians chapter 2. That God will exalt him and give him a name above every name. That he'll be the captain of salvation. To open the door for mankind to come to the father once and for all. But he has no way to bring that about. He's utterly at God's mercy. And God doesn't cut any corners. God operates legally. The, the righteous judgment upon sin. Falls upon Jesus. But the Bible says. The last verse of Romans chapter 4, that Jesus was raised from the dead when we were justified. There came a moment, a specific moment in time, when the price was paid. 
And at that moment, the life of God came back in Jesus. He's joined again to the Father. He's the first begotten or first born from the dead, meaning spiritual death. The Bible says he strips Satan of his powers, takes the keys of hell and death, and then preaches to the saints in prison. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He leads captivity captive. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about what Jesus said would happen. Those in the graves would hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, why is the Son of God instead of the Son of Man? Because the life that has come back upon him is the life that God has imparted to him through the new birth. You know, it's an interesting thing, folks. And I, I'm just starting to see some things along this line. Don't see it yet the way that I want to or need to, I guess. But so often what holds us back is, is our experience with sin prior to and even in some cases following our being born again. What I'm saying is we look at ourselves and our experience with sin and let that hold us back from what the Bible says who we are and what we have in him, in Jesus. But I want you to understand that Jesus had an experience with sin too. Not because of his own sin. Not because he chose or even stumbled into sin. But because he was made sin. He has the same new birth experience that you have. He's the firstborn from spiritual death. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Does his previous experience with sin disqualify him from that place? The Bible says you've been raised to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Does your previous ex experience with sin disqualify you from that place? No. No more than it would disqualify Jesus. So what did Jesus tell us to do? Jesus told us to do the same works that he did here on the earth. What works did Jesus do here on the earth? He was a man that was spiritually alive with power that was conferred, not his own, uh, of himself, with power that was conferred upon him. How are we to do the same works as Jesus? Well, we've received the same life of God that Jesus had when he was here on the earth and received after he was born again in the lower parts of the earth. And we have the same power conferred on us that was conferred on Jesus. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. I'm running out of time, so let me get to this real quick. Luke chapter 10. Is this making any sense? I think a lot of times, well, I'm concerned that I get caught up in my own thinking. And I get to the point where I start to see some things. But I don't know if I'm able to communicate them so that other people can see them too. So I'm trying. That's all I know to do. This is a story where Jesus sends out the 70. He tells them to go into the cities two by two and to heal the sick that are therein and say the kingdom of God is coming to you and so forth. Verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, did Satan fall when they exercised authority over the devil? No, he's talking about when Satan fell, rebelled against God, and God cast him out of heaven down to the earth. That was before the, the, the creation experience that's told to us in Genesis chapter 1. That was before man was created. I want you to notice something. The Bible is saying... Jesus is saying that Satan was a defeated foe here on the earth before he stole man's authority. And Jesus, exercising authority according to the old covenant, law of Moses and the Abrahamic covenant, still treats Satan as a defeated foe. I want you to see that Jesus had authority through a yearly sacrifice, ritual sacrifice, 
in keeping the Old Testament law of Moses. Jesus had authority to defeat the devil and to confer upon others who were unrighteous. They had a promise of righteousness, but were unrighteous except for the sacrifice of bulls and goats. A temporary reprieve from the law of sin and death through the Old Testament sacrifice. Jesus was able to give them. And you realize that's a whole lot less than what you've got, right? You've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. These 70 didn't have that. They couldn't have that. Because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. Yet they are eligible to receive authority over all the power of the devil. Well, then what are you eligible for? If that was the authority that they had to walk in, what's the measure of authority that's available for you and me as new creatures in Christ Jesus with the same new birth experience that Jesus had? Yeah, we've got experience with sin in our past, but so did Jesus. And now he's been exalted and given a name that's above every name. So Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. Literally, this word power is the word authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. This is a different word power. It means ability. Over all the ability of the enemy. So many times people are concerned and thinking about how powerful the devil is. It really doesn't matter what the extent of his power is. Because Jesus said, I give you authority over all of his power. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now notice verse 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't get excited about having authority over the devil. That's not the thing for us to rejoice about. Now, we'll read the rest of the scripture here in a minute, but let me bring something to your attention. Aren't most Christians that you know of working overtime, trying to exercise authority over the devil? Isn't that the focus when we talk about authority? Isn't that the focus of most people's thinking? How do we defeat the devil in our lives? Yet Jesus said, you shouldn't be happy about the fact that you have authority over devils or over all the power of the enemy. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not. Let's read the rest of the verse. That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Because your names are written in heaven. What we should be happy about and rejoice about is that our names are written in heaven. Now, why is that? Well, remember where we started in Genesis one twenty six, where God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion over the works of our hand. What was the source of Adam's dominion? The life of God. The life of God. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, verse 12. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, most of us live, and I I don't mean to be making an accusation if it doesn't fit you, but a lot of Christians, a lot of word people are trying to make Satan part of their stomping grounds, not their footstool. And it seems to me, I've been guilty of this too, but it seems to me that so often people are trying to accomplish in the flesh the exercise of authority that the Bible says we have. And we struggle 
and we strive. And we're trying to make good the authority that the Bible says is ours. But the Bible says that Jesus is waiting for Satan to be made his footstool. That would be his enemy, wouldn't it? What's a footstool? You have any footstools in your house? Do you stand on them? Do you walk in the house and step up on the footstool and stomp around a few times? The only, play, the only time, the only conditions that I ever use a footstool in my house is when I'm reclining. It's something you put your feet up on. And folks, that's the example, the picture that Jesus paints for our position in him. Raised up together with him, seated in heavenly places with him. Not striving, not struggling to make good the authority that that he said we have. Not trying to enforce the devil's leaving our circumstances or our situations. And that's what so often seems to me that people are trying to accomplish in the flesh. Now, the Bible says our position should be that we rejoice because of the life of God that's been given to us, understanding that that enables us to lean back in him, knowing that the devil is under our feet with the simple and quiet exercise of authority, maintaining that place where he's under our feet. No struggle, no strive. I'm reminded of a story that Brother Hagin told. He was in a meeting and and, uh, he and the the pastor were next door at the parsonage. The meeting was over for the night and he and the pastor knelt down to pray with the uh, the pastor's 11-year-old daughter before she went to bed. And he said, as soon as I knelt down, I knelt down into a white cloud. And he said, there was Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I'm going to teach you about Satan and demons. For from this night, what you know of, or what is known in my word, as discerning of spirits will operate when you're in the spirit. And so he started to teach him. He said it lasted for about an hour and a half. And so Jesus began to teach him about how the devil operates and so forth. And sometime during this, uh, this vision that he had, he said that there was an evil spirit that came up. He said he called it a monkey-looking thing, meaning about the size of a little monkey. And he started jumping up and down in a real shrill voice saying, yakety-yak, yakety-yak, yak and putting out some kind of black cloud smoke screen type thing. And he said, Brother Hagin's talking about his own experience here. He said, I, I panicked. Because I can't hear what Jesus has to say anymore. I can hear that he's still speaking. But I can't distinguish the words. Because of the noise that this evil spirit's making. He said my first thought is. Why doesn't Jesus do something about this? This continued on for a little bit. A short period of time. Brother Hagin said in desperation. I just spoke up and said. I command you to stop that in the name of Jesus. And that thing hit the floor like a sack of salt. And he said, not only stop that, but get out of here. So he tucked tail and ran and went away. And then Jesus told Brother Hagin after that had completed, the Lord told him, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. And Brother Hagin started to argue with the Lord. He said, I I must have not heard you right. You didn't say that you couldn't have. If I hadn't done something, you said you wouldn't have, didn't you? Three times, Jesus said, I didn't say I wouldn't have. I said I couldn't have. Finally, you had to almost get in Brother Hagin's face and say it real loud. I said I couldn't. And then he explained to him and showed him in the scripture that there's no place that the Bible says that God will ever do anything about the devil for you. But that you, as a believer, have authority to do something about him for yourself. 
I've thought about that in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that I think is appropriate for ending this message tonight is Jesus didn't get all hot and bothered when the evil spirit started acting up. He didn't run over to where he was and stop him. He didn't try to force him. He didn't say, don't you know who I am? None of that kind of stuff. He very calmly continued about his business, continuing to tell Brother Hagin the things that were important about the subject matter that they were discussing or that he was discussing with Brother Hagin. My point is very simply this. God doesn't get agitated about what the devil's doing. Maybe we shouldn't either. Now, I believe the reason God doesn't get agitated is because he knows that his power, meaning the power of the Holy Ghost, the greater one that lives on the inside of you, is well sufficient, more than sufficient, to cover and to take care of anything the devil does. He knows the unlimited power that's available to us. He knows that the authority that he's given the church is much greater than anything the devil has or can do. He's not running around trying to make sure the devil knows that God's power is greater. He just goes about his business expecting us to use the authority that's been given to us. There's nowhere in the Bible that God expects us or indicates to us in any way whatsoever that he wants us to live in such a way where we're bothered by the devil. The Bible talks about the temptations that come upon us, the trouble that we have here on the earth. God knows about all those things, but he's given us a means to overcome every one of them. The name of Jesus is sufficient. Well, if he's not bothered about it, then why do we get so bothered about it? If he knows that the power that's residing within us, the same power that raised us up when he raised him up, Jesus, when God raised Jesus up from the dead, if he knows that that's sufficient to take care of every situation, then why don't we rest in it and know the same thing? See, in, um, in sports lingo, they talk about Athletes not pressing when they get behind or when they're not doing well. Trying to do too much, but to let the game come to them. I wonder if that works in the Christian life when they, concerning the exercise of authority. We don't have to try to make it good. We don't have to try to prove it to be true. We just from our hearts. Believe in what the Bible says. Speak in the name of Jesus. And we let God make good in his word. The source of our authority is the life of God that's within us. The devil can't overcome that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. Even as Jesus said, Father, we rejoice because our names are written in heaven. We believe and recognize that the greater one lives on the inside of us. And that greater one has already overcome the devil and all of his works. We recognize that evil spirits are subject to us in the name of Jesus. But that's not what we rejoice in, Father. We know that the blessings of Abraham are ours, meaning divine health, abundance, well-being in every area, the peace of God. We don't have to make that happen. We don't have to make that so. We just simply accept it by faith and act on your word and declare that it's true. Therefore, we tell the devil, Satan, take your hands off of our bodies in the name of Jesus. Take your hands off of our finances in the name of Jesus. Take your hands off of our family 
in the name of Jesus. And we rest in you, Lord. And we put our feet up on the footstool. Knowing that Satan is under our feet. Knowing that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word can never fail. Thank you, Father, that you make good your word in our lives. We declare that we're free. From every aspect, every consequence of the law of sin and death. We declare, even as Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from that law of sin and death. Thank you, Father, for the life of God within us. The life of God that makes us one with you. That makes us part of your family. That restores us to a place of authority and dominion in the earth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your name. Amen. Amen. I think it's time to quit striving and just be the church. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.